Well, turn with me this morning to John's Gospel, the first chapter. Begin reading with verse 14. We'll read down to uh, verse 18. So we continue the second week of Advent and uh, meditate and think about the coming of the first Advent, or first coming of Christ our Savior. Let's see what John's Gospel has to say about the incarnate Lord. John chapter 1, begin reading with verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let us pray. Father, as we meditate and come before you this morning on this truth of your word, as we think about the coming of Christ our Savior, as we think about the sending of the incarnate one, we pray and we bow our hearts humbly to you and admit and acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we, pray, as we hear your word and Think of your word this morning. We pray that your word might change us into the image of Christ our Savior. Be with me, Lord, as I proclaim your truth. Anoint my lips. Use me for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Title of the sermon this morning, The Passion of the Incarnation. I don't know if you have ever wanted anything so bad that you were willing to do anything to get it. Uh, a couple years ago, my wife and I were interested in, into watching American Ninja Warrior. I don't know if any of you have seen that show, but if you, if you have, you know that they do things that no human being should be able to do. Um, but my wife and I were fascinated how that for some people, in fact most people, that little three to five minute window of time that they're on television is only just a snippet of all the time and the energy and the, the practice that they put in uh, the year prior. In fact, some of them, they have no other full-time job. That's what they do all day long, seven days a week or five days a week. They, they have a home gym and they prepare for that little three to five minute time of competition. And in the moments that people who've been working for years or perhaps even decades on getting their body fit and really accomplishing this goal, getting something they want, achieving the title of America's Ninja Warrior, it's disappointing. The frustration on their face whenever maybe 30 seconds in or 60 seconds in, they fall and they land in the water. And you can see the disappointment. You can see how that in that small window of time, everything they've worked for seems to have come to naught. But then for those who actually make it to the, to the end and they finish the round, uh, one thing I never saw was for them simply to, you know, get up on the platform and acknowledge, yeah, that, that was all right. I did my job. I'm, I'm done. 
You never see mediocrity. You never see complacency. Instead, you see this exuberant joy. You see this excitement. In fact, usually they're expressive. They'll either they'll yell or they'll scream or they'll jump. They'll, you know, they'll do something that expresses the joy they have as a result of achieving something they really want. Well, what I believe the Apostle John is communicating this morning in the passage that we read is this type of exuberant joy. But not on the part of mere man, but on the part of God incarnate on the part of God himself, when he invades space and time, when he becomes part of our world, this manifestation of this passion, this joy, this fulfillment of a longing, if we could be so crass as to subscribe this longing to God, what we see in the incarnate one, what we see in the birth of Jesus our Savior is truly joy and excitement and passion fulfilled. And so I believe there are three different things that uh, I want to draw from this text that John the Apostle is, is endeavoring to communicate. The first is that God is among us. He begins this passage by saying in verse 14 that the Word became flesh. Now, in the mind of a first century Jew, even a first century Roman or a first century Greek, even though it was for different reasons, this idea that God would become man that any deity would stoop to the point of taking on human flesh was unthinkable. To the Jew, it's blasphemous that God himself would condescend to become one of us. To the Greek, it was insane. It was ludicrous, this notion that somehow the deity could become corrupt in flesh. They saw the flesh, the body, as being something uh, as evil, as, as different. And it would have been an ultimate humiliation for any God, unthinkable for any God to become man. And so the apostle makes no bones about it. He gives this introduction in in verses 1 through 13. He talks about the fact that this word is not not simply um, a man, but that rather this word is eternal. And he begins this gospel with language that is very similar. In fact, it's evocative for the Jew of his day to Genesis 1.1 where we read that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And here the Apostle John ties the incarnate one. He ties Jesus Christ to that very moment in eternity and in time in the very beginning when he begins his gospel by saying that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He is making an emphatic statement that God, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, and that with the birth of Christ, with the first advent of our Savior, with him coming to earth and being placed in a manger there in Bethlehem, that God is among us. What we see throughout the Old and the New Testament, really throughout the Bible, is this saturation all throughout the pages of redemptive history, this longing, if I can call it this, that reaching all the way back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden in which God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. We see this desire on the part of God to be with us, for us to be his people and for him to be our God. 
And so in Genesis 3.15, from there onward, we see that paradise renewed, paradise restored, in which God and man walk side by side, and God communicates with man and man with God, and they're in perfect fellowship one with another, is the ultimate agenda of the creator of the universe. This all-powerful God, this word who is in the beginning, is not content with leaving the human race to our own demise. Rather, he has destined those in Christ to whom he will seek to enter into a relationship. And he's willing to pay any price, even death, in order to obtain it. Now, it's interesting that the Greek word here that is translated in the English is dwelt. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Actually means to pitch one's tent. It's not used very often in the New Testament. In the Greek translation of the ode, it's used uh, to, to reference the tabernacle that existed in the wilderness. If you recall, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt and they were in a transitory state before the temple was built in Jerusalem, that the tabernacle was God's meeting place with man. And so when, when John writes that the word became flesh and pitched his tent or tabernacled among us, he is evoking not only images of the Old Testament, in which there was a, a meeting place, this ground on which God sanctified and invited mankind to approach his throne. He's evoking this imagery that in this person, in this man, in this God-man, we have access to God himself. That in Christ, God is truly Emmanuel, God with us, God among us. God was not content to allow us to continue in darkness, to allow us to continue on our own, but rather he pulled back the curtain of time and space and invaded our world and became part of our daily life. The creator of the universe had to be taught how to restrain his own bowels. That's what we see in Jesus the man that God would become part of our world, that God would truly be among us. Hebrews says it like this. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, the writer says, Therefore he had, speaking of Christ, to be made like his brothers, like you and I, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, it was not enough. For this creator of heaven and earth, this creator of all that is, to allow you and I to be redeemed by any other means other than God becoming man. Christ among us. God among us. Not only among us, but suffering with us. Experiencing pain. Experiencing death. That's what we see in Christ our Savior. You know, we hear in this in this passionate earthquake of history and of time, when, when God invades our world and becomes man, we hear this echo from the book of Ruth. It's, it's this passionate description of God longing to be with us, which evokes the memory of Ruth, if you recall, when she came out of uh, Moab, the land of Moab, and she was accompanying her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she made this statement. She said, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. This tenacity that I'm not going to let you out of my sight. This tenacity that I want to be with you. 
See, the reason why I think for many of us, Christmas can become mundane or Christmas can become ordinary is because we do not sense from the pages of redemptive history, from the pages of scripture, the passionate display on the part of a loving God that the incarnation truly is. That God rends space and time to become part of our world, part of our existence. That in the incarnate one, in Jesus Christ, God is among us. Now, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you and I as we struggle in this everyday world? Well, I think, um, I think it means one simple thing, which I trust most of us, if not all of us, will find very comforting. It means that we are not alone. You know, we live in a, in a day and age in which there's every opportunity with social media, with various outlets, there's every opportunity to stay connected, yet disconnection and loneliness is pervasive. In fact, recently I read an article that was published in the Independent Chronicler by a lady named Heather Saul. And she said that referencing a 2014 study that the people between the ages of 18 and 24 which is historically the time, the, the, the age when people are the most connected with their peer group, with, with uh, people their own age and stage in life, that based on this survey, people between the ages of 18 to 24 were four times more likely than people 70 years and older to feel lonely. The survey went on to say that currently there are over 400 million users of Instagram. Now, I don't use Instagram. Some of you do, so you know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. But there are over 400 million users of Instagram. And according to this research in 2014, there were more than 4.7 million hashtags of lonely. We live in a society where even though we have the opportunity to connect, we are not connected. Even though we need relationship desperately, we live in a, in a relational desert. And so the good news of the gospel, the good news of the incarnation, first and foremost, is that God is among us, that we are not alone. And so I trust that we can take comfort uh, in that truth. Now, when we talk about the fact that there is this incarnate one, Jesus, who became who became man, God who became man in, in Christ and dwelled among us and suffered in the same way that we did. I'm not talking about a mere exercise in theological dogma. Yes, we use a theological term. We call it the incarnation. We call it God becoming man, God becoming flesh. But it's more than theological dogma. It's a riveting heart cry from a God filled with passion of hundreds of centuries who flings himself onto the world stage in an impassioned search for his estranged bride. And that's what I want you to see in the incarnation. Because historically, as we read scripture, what we see is this relentless pursuit down throughout the centuries of God pursuing man, initiating a covenant first with Adam and then with Noah and then with Abraham, initiating some means so that man who is fallen, who is sinful, who is totally unholy, can have a relationship with a God who is completely holy. And so in the incarnation, we are to hear an expression of a lover. We are to hear a demonstration. We are to see in a way that is refreshing and that is new an all-powerful God 
who has an all-consuming desire to know and be known. And that's one of the most fundamental needs of all human beings. You and I, as we navigate this world, we have a fundamental desire. Whether we realize it or not, whether we suppress it, whether we give in to it, we have a desire to know and to be known because we're made in the likeness and the image of God. And what we see throughout the pages of Revelation of history, of, of biblical history, is that God has revealed himself to his people, that God has disclosed himself, not in his totality. We could not understand God. We cannot understand God in his totality, but rather to the degree to which God seeks to make himself known. He has revealed himself to us not only in scripture, but also according to the writer of the book of Hebrews in the face of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about this incarnate one, when we preach and when we pray to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is God made man, let us remember the fact that in Christ himself, the intimacy of, of God, the longing on the part of God to be reconciled to man is manifested. This intimacy is first reflected, we believe, in, in the dance, the sacred dance, if I can be so vulgar as to call it that, of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This dance, this union that they have one with another, three persons in one God, can spend your mind or can make your mind start spinning. But this, this union that they have, which began or, or did not begin, it has no beginning and no end, but that can be dated back to the velvety dark folds of an eternal past and continues into the unfathomable eons of the future. In the incarnation, this very God himself invades our world with an outstretched hand and compels us with the most ardent passion of any poetic lover to join him in this sacred dance. Not that we become God, please don't hear what I'm not saying, not that we become divine, but rather that the family of God is complete. That with the coming of Christ, the incarnate one, in fact, John says this in verse 13, he gives us the power or the right to become children of God. We are adopted by God. We belong to him. And so the incarnation, if it's truly understood, is to be understood in the context of a passionate display of a loving God. Now the second point that I want to make is not simply that God is among us, but also that God is above us. The fact that God is among us can be terrifying. But the fact that God pitched his tent among us, providing a means of reconciling us to him, is extraordinary, surpassing all earthly understanding, primarily because God is so far above us. And we see this somewhat referenced by John the Baptist in verse 15. When he tells the people that he was preaching to, he says, John bore witness about him, speaking of Christ, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, he who is coming, he who has come, Christ, God incarnate, is so far above us. He's eternal. This is the point that John was making in the first 13 verses of, of chapter 1, that he is God, that he is eternal, that he is from before time began. And that everything that is created and made was created and made through him, by him, and for him. 
And so for him to become man, ultimately, for him who is so totally, for he who is so totally other. See, everything that you and I know and experience in this life is part of the creation. It's part of our creatureliness. The world that we live in, everything that we know, all of the items that we're familiar with that we use on a daily basis, it's all part of the realm of creation. Whether God created it directly or things that you and I make out of paper and plastic and wood. It's all part of the created world. But God the creator is totally other. He's in a category all to himself. In fact, if you look at the description, the most consistent description of God given in the Old Testament is that he's holy. And the biblical definition of holy is that he is set apart, that he's completely different from you and I, completely different from his creation. So for this creator to become part of his creation. No wonder it was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. No wonder it was too difficult to fully grasp and understand. It is even today. But for God, who is so far above us, to condescend and invade our world so that we might become his children, so that his family might be complete, so that we might experience his love as a reconciled son and daughter of his, It boggles the mind. When I was in the sixth grade, I moved schools. The elementary school that I had attended from kindergarten uh, was no longer working out. I had some issues that I was struggling with, and so I was transferred from the elementary school I grew up in, or that I had attended up to that point, to a school across town. And when you're in the sixth grade and you move schools, that's tough. I entered a classroom where everyone had been together since kindergarten. They all knew each other. They, they all had a relationship with. I didn't know anyone. And so I remember during recess being that kid on the playground who's sitting in the rocks by himself, a little afraid, uncomfortable, awkward. I'm new. I don't know anybody. I don't know how things work at this school. But there was one young man named Joey Carter. Carter, I never will forget him. <clears throat> he was probably one of the most popular kids in, in my grade. But his name was Joey Carter. And he came over, sat down with me in the rocks. He made an effort. He had to stop what he was doing, stop the game of kickball or whatever it was that he was playing, and came over and sat with me in the rocks and made an effort to get to know me. And I have to tell you that when he did, I felt so important. I felt validated. I felt like here's this popular kid who's coming and sitting with me, a a newbie. He's making me, and people look at you different. You know, it shouldn't be the way it is, but it is. When the popular kid in school sits next to you in the dirt, they look at you different. They're like, well, this guy must be cooler than we thought. (laughs) Well, if you can think just for a moment in a much broader, grander scale, That is what the incarnation was. A God who is completely other, a God who is completely all-powerful, separate from our universe, separate from who we are, yet the creator of us all, coming and sitting in the dirt next to us to be our friend. And one step more, to welcome us into his family. So when we think of the incarnation, the fact that God is among us is tremendous because God is above us. Now, 
the reality is that for Christ to manifest to us in his life of 33 and a half years, the very character and the nature of God, it shows us that we are worse off than we think. John's gospel talks about this in chapter 3, verse 19, when John says, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works are evil. So the presence of the light, it illuminates the room, it illuminates our hearts so that we have a better understanding of who we are. But look at how John describes Jesus. He says that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Christ doesn't just come to illuminate ourselves to us. He doesn't come to show us the degradation, the depravity, and the sin of who we are. He comes to redeem. And so John did not simply say that his glory is the glory of truth and leave it at that. He said, we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. Not simply truth by itself. Truth alone can become legalistic. Grace alone can become liberal. But when you marry the two together, as we do in the embodiment of, the, of God himself, of the very Son of God in Jesus Christ, what we see is that grace and truth kiss. And that as we understand who we are and our degradation and our sin and our brokenness, we begin to glimpse who God is more clearly because Christ came to reconcile, to change us, to be our Savior, <clears throat> and to reconcile us to God. Okay, point three, there in your bulletin, there in your notes, finally is that God is made known. It is impossible to know God apart from Christ. Now, ultimately, this is where the exclusiveness of Christianity and all other religions of the world uh, collide. Because ultimately, if you say that we are Christians, but we think Christianity is one way to God among many, then people are not going to have an issue with anything you believe. But if you say that Christ is the only way to know God, and that we cannot know him, we cannot be reconciled to him, we cannot serve him or, or, or love him apart from Christ, then that sets us apart. But what we see in Scripture is that very truth, that Christ makes God known. Uh, verse 17 says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the giving of the law, by the way, is in and of itself a work of grace. But the law teaches us as the redeemed of God how we should live. The law teaches us how we should be. The coming of Christ teaches us who we are. Not only does it teach us, it, it makes us. It is the power that John references there in verse 13, that as many as who received him by grace, by th uh, through faith, that they became the children of God. We were reconciled to God through this incarnate one. So Jesus makes God known to us. It tells us something profound about God. It tells us that God is not content, nor was he content in the eternal dance of love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, simply to allow that to continue, which he could have done. And we're not told in the Bible why he didn't. We're not told why God chose to create anything instead of allowing this sacred dance between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's been going on for eternity to continue in the same way. But what we see in the heart of a creator, God, and in the coming of the incarnate one, 
is such a manifestation of love. We see God. That is what John says in verse 18. No one's ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. With the coming of Christ, he is the new prototype of humanity. He is the new essence of man. He manifests to the world what it means to be human. What it means to be reconciled to God. The way that God intended us to be. His work of redemption in us is ultimately his work of grace. Now, when we contemplate that, we we realize that we are experiencing and talking about a love that is superlative by its very nature. It's not a love like, you know, your wife or your best friend or your husband. It's far surpassing that. It is a love that is superlative. It's a love that, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's a love that means that in the incarnate one, Christ is our brother, our elder brother, who reconciles us to God and makes us a part of the family. That with his coming, he came to save sinners. That's why Paul again says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, if the fact that God is among us is comforting because we're not alone. And if the fact that God is above us is frightening because we're worse than we think, the fact that God is made known in the face and the person and the life and the resurrection and the power of the gospel through Jesus Christ our Lord is reassuring because it demonstrates to us that God will spare no expense to reconcile his estranged bride to himself. This is why, again, Paul in Romans, the epistle of Romans, the eighth chapter, the 32nd verse, puts it so beautifully when he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his own son. But through the incarnate one, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, you and I have redemption. We have atonement. By the word being made flesh and dwelling among us, God himself is made known to us. And he invites us into his family. Now, one of the most profound impacts, I believe, and I was struggling with this all week long as I was thinking through this passage and praying about it myself and thinking about it. And I was overwhelmed, to be quite honest. And I still am a bit overwhelmed, and I hope that I always will be, by just this demonstration of love on the part of God that is the incarnation, that is God becoming flesh. And I trust that as we behold this manifestation of love, ultimately, in Christ, not only are we redeemed to God, but our hearts become set ablaze by his Holy Spirit and and, and through the gospel, that we become ablaze, that we become impassioned, that our lives begin to reflect the incarnate mission. Because not only is Christ the incarnate one, and he is, and he's superlative, and by no means do I mean to detract from that, from what I'm about to say, but the reality is that when Christ gave the great commission to his church, in Matthew, he said, go into all world, make disciples of all men. 
Ultimately, you and I are to take the incarnate gospel, the gospel of the incarnate Christ, and we are to allow the word to become flesh in our own lives. And what that looks like is the, the, the unlovable we love, not because they're grand, not because they're deserving, but we love them for the sake of Christ. Our next door neighbor who is mean, who is hateful, who, who, who does things and says things to elicit a response, a negative response. We love them, not for their sake, but for the sake of Christ. That's taking the incarnate gospel of the incarnate word and living it out in the context of everyday life. So in closing, I, I trust that in a much grander way, as we, going back to American Ninja Warrior, as we witness the exuberance and the excitement on the face of, of those who are victorious, as they reach the end and they hit the buzzer, and they realize that they did what they've been training so long to do, I trust that in a much grander way we see in the incarnation the exuberance of a loving God, the excitement of a father who spares no expense and is willing to give his only son so that you and I might be redeemed and might become part of his family. May that be an encouraging thought. May it be a redemptive thought. May it be our motivation as we continue on throughout this Christmas season. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have so loved the world, O oh God, that you gave your only begotten Son. We thank you for the incarnate one. We thank you for God among us and a God who is so much greater than we are. A God who through the Holy Spirit and through the person of Christ and your word reveals our true selves to us. And in that revelation that you extend grace. And that you call us not to cling to our goodness or our righteousness, but to cling to yours. Knowing that Jesus Christ is our only hope of heaven and Jesus Christ is our redeemer. And so, Father, we pray that we might always remember. That we might always live out the passion of the incarnation knowing that it is a manifestation of a love on a scale much greater than we could possibly imagine. And Father, in some small way, may you, through your Holy Spirit, work that love in us and through us in every sphere of influence that we may have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.